welcome guys to the to the show it's uh, it's great to have you both on the two things you shouldn't talk about podcast um so for anyone that uh, isn't familiar with my two guests i'll let you just go around and do a bit of an intro on on who you guys are and what your backgrounds are so let's start off with uh, with uq what uh, would you just give a little bit of an intro on yourself yeah hey uh so i'm, I'm q the abolitionist i'm one of the co-hosts of uh, unshackled liberty podcast um we were going to talk a little bit about uh what, what do you want to talk about the, the Christ, Christianity and libertarianism is that yeah that's the that, general yeah. theme yeah we're okay. we're kind of all on the the spectrum of, of libertarian I would say um would it would it be appropriate to give my 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 background of faith and my absolutely. background of politics in this okay so um, I come from the uh, from the Baptist um, theology of Christianity independent Baptist specifically I got saved I was 16 years old uh, so um, and uh, in in that I've I've been a uh, you know, you're you're in Northern Ireland, so I don't know what yep. what all of your po- political affiliations are like there. But uh, for anybody in the states who might be listening, I was a, a card carrying neocon for the better part of my adult life, um, and uh, recently, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that. During the 2016 presidential run, um, I just I couldn't get on board with uh, with Trump. Just couldn't mm. do it, and uh, and of course Hillary was out, and so I started looking for other options, and then. And then the you know the Libertarian Party popped up, and as I studied libertarianism, I mm-hmm. moved on from partisan politics altogether. I'm, I'm I consider myself a voluntarist or an abolitionist now, where I'm just I'm uh, you know the the dirty word is anarchist, right? You know yeah. because that that, that that carries a lot of different connotations from a lot for a lot of different people, but but I think it's cleaner to just say abolitionist or voluntarist. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm where where I come from. That's my that's my line. Um, that's the road I'm on right now, and awesome. and uh, I'm just appreciative of the opportunity to come on your show, and uh, and have this conversation. Yeah. So before we move on, uh, give us a little bit of a rundown of some of those terms that you threw out, some of the jargon. So we'll start with neocon. So anyone that doesn't know yeah. what neocon means, so it's like a, it's like a with a neoconservative, right? So um, these are these are your na- you know these are your nationalists nowadays in the United States. These are the guys who are you know on Team Red. Right. Um, flag flag waving members of, of of the trump the trump team and and uh uh they 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 believe in a police state and strong borders and strong national security and a lot of times when you look at that just kind of on its face at least for me i was like well that kind of makes sense we want to be safe we want to be protected we want to you know have have law and order and all that on all that stuff but when you take a deeper dive into what all that means and the stuff that you have to do mm-hmm. to implement implement the these these policies it's a Mm-hmm. It's not liberty. That's a little for bit sure. of a catch, you, you know? know. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's, that's what got me. Mostly. Okay, and then uh, so you said as well about abolitionists and uh, what was the other one you said? Volunt- voluntaryism. Vol- Vol- yeah, voluntarist. Voluntarist. Yeah. So, um, what are those two guys? So, vol- a voluntarist is somebody who believes that all human interaction should be voluntary in nature. Um, that the fact that, and this is a great opportunity. Like you and I are having this conversation. We're having this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, if either one of us decided that we didn't want to do it. Well, yeah, we, we just log out. Yeah, yeah, we just walk away, right? So, and uh, and that, that's the principle. So that that that's those that's market economics. You know, those two a buyer and a seller coming mm-hmm. to a mutual agreement. You know, um, and that's all human interaction. So, mm. uh, when the state, the state is coercion, right? That's what it is. Government is coercion. They have a monopoly on force, and and so all of the interaction with the state is um, based on the barrel of a gun. Right, okay. so that's not that's not voluntary, right? So yeah. I kind of am the op- yeah, I'm the opposite of that. And the word abolitionist comes from um, 
you know, America ha- America has a slave history, right? Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we we were a slave country, and we owned we owned. I say we. I didn't. I never did. <laughs> yeah. I don't. You know. But uh, you know, well, historically, some some people these yeah. days would would like to tell yeah. you what, that you what, you were complicit in this somehow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> somehow. Yeah. 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 But uh, I say we because I'm an American. This is where I'm from, and and our history is such that. Uh, it was common practice to own black African slaves. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was common practice for a while to have Irish slaves, too. It's much less, much less publicized, mm-hmm. but, uh, but you know, that, that, that was the norm. In fact, um, if I recall correctly, Irish slaves were, were cheaper and more disposable right. than, than <laughs> African slaves uh, when, when, there were, when there were Irish right. slaves. <laughs> um, you know, I just, you know, that's, that's one of those things. But... Um, so the term comes from that, you know, the abolitionist movement was to abolish slavery. Mm. And I still feel the same way and that the state, we have moved on, we have universalized slavery in the, in, in the United States. Uh, instead of having black African slaves, which was just as it was, mm-hmm. which was immoral, I'm not advocating right, for that yeah. at all. Um, we, we, have, we have universalized that. So uh, we have debt slaves and we have tax slaves and that's what we are. We live on a tax mm. ranch and we are tax cattle. And so uh, the term abolitionist is, or the word abolitionist is geared towards abolishing the state or abolishing the plantation owners, right? Right. The ruling class. So, Interesting. So that's also, my perspective. Sorry. Yeah. I don't know if that, that, that took a lot long. No, no. <laughs> that's a pretty long introduction for you. I'm sorry. Well, we might as well get, get all the stuff explained before we get fully yeah, started. Yeah. So awesome. Uh, let's go to Kevin then. So welcome, Kevin. Uh, give us a bit of a rundown on who you are and what you're all about. Absolutely. Well, so first off, thank you for having me on. And uh, I have to say, I agree with a lot of what Q had to say there. Um, as far as my history goes, I've spent my whole adult life, at least, if not even longer than that, kind of almost in the desert when it comes to politics. Right. I was raised in a household that was more democratic. I had other family members and, and friends who were Republican, kind of wafting back and forth because I, I had things in my life that I agreed with on the left and things on the right, and I just never really found a home anywhere. So I gave up on politics for a number of years. Mm. Um, eventually, probably in about 2012, I almost turned my back on politics completely. But then I started discovering people who were in the Libertarian Party. I started investigating a little bit, but then I would, you know, life got in the way. And then, you know, kids got in the way, careers. And then I would, I would back off for a while, but then I started doing a deeper dive as time went on. And very similar, in about 2016, um, it really caught my attention what was going on in the U.S. and with politics. And I realized there's no way I could be part of either of the left or the right party. Mm. Um, and that's when I started doing a deeper dive into libertarianism. And, and actually, I just recently can, uh, um, threw my head into the ring, I guess you would say, as a libertarian. So I'm still a right. fairly new libertarian. Um, now, as far as my faith goes, that's actually uh, even more uh, convoluted, if you will. <laughs> I was raised in a Catholic home. Um didn't really stick. We, we uh, I liked things about the, the religion, but I, we, we never really seemed to practice religion. It was just we went to church, mm-hmm. we did the, 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 the holy holidays, and that was about it. Um, no one else really seemed to act or behave like, say, Jesus would. Right. <laughs> so because of this, I always kind of found myself distant. Now, I went through most of my uh, adolescence and, and early adulthood being irreligious, uh, but always having a draw towards the Bible, always having the draw towards wanting to attend a church. Mm-hmm. And then finally, when I was about 28, 29 years old, I started to attend a church. And then that's when I did, I was just encapsulated with it. I was around a lot of people who had been walking with Jesus for decades, um, pastors, 
and teachers. Uh, I, I found myself in a very fortunate situation where I was surrounded by a bunch of mature Christians who were able to help me understand things and answer questions. And because of that, I became a full-fledged Christian, I would say, when I'm about 29, 30 years old, and I haven't looked back since. Hmm. Now, as far as my podcasting goes, I, I do do a show about libertarianism. Uh, it's a once-a-week show, but again, this is a show designed to go into doing a deeper dive of what it means to be a libertarian, because I know even I have many questions, yeah. and the more libertarians I, I meet, the, the more I realize we all have differing opinions. There might be a, a basic set of tenets that we kind of believe in about mm -hmm. self-ownership, personal responsibility, these sort of things, um, but there's a lot of gray area, and because of that, I know there's a lot of room for a lot of wiggle room, if you will, mm -hmm. to discover what it means to be a libertarian. Yeah, I was going to ask, was your show, like, is it a learning process for you as well? Because you mentioned that you're a fairly young libertarian, so this is clear, This is you exploring your views through these shows? Absolutely, 100%. So, I mean, there's things where I've, you know, just started the podcast about two months ago. And, I mean, before then, like I said, I was doing a far deeper dive about, you know, a few months before that. But there are things that I'm learning that I didn't know, and not that I even fully agree with either. I mean, there are things within the libertarian platform which I understand where they're coming from, but I can't 100% support. But I, you know, I support 98% mm -hmm. of the platform. Right. That sort of thing. So there is a lot that I am learning as we go along. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so, Q, what's the rough sort of topic? Like, what are, what's the rough um, area that your show is exploring then in terms of libertarianism? Is it everything, or is it uh, just you know having a bit of a having a bit of banter between the guests, or what do you tend to explore in your show? We're a, we're a variety show actually. Um, so we we want to just talk about everything, man. Uh, you know, we, we, we go into whatever we can and find find a libertarian angle on, on it. Uh, we just recently recorded a show on uh, a debate, basically, um, mm -hmm. about bottom bottom unity and uh, whether right or right and left libertarians could ever get together, get along, and, right. and unite to unite to kind of like. Uh, uh, you know, from our perspective, get rid of the state altogether, but but from a minarchist perspective, perhaps mm. uh, just, you know, limit or minimize the size of the state. Right. So um, yeah. and, you know, so we, we did a whole we did a whole debate on that. And, and later wow. later today, actually, I'll be uh, having a conversation with Lynn Ulbricht. Um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Ross Ulbricht and his story with the Silk Road. Uh, but uh, we'll be talking about if you hear a dog barking in the background, <laughs> I do this in the living room. So, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. But uh, uh, I'll try to mute my mic when I'm not talking to keep the background no noise. Worries. To a no, don't but, worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you might you might hear my dog in the background. I mean, barking, I'll but. I'll be honest with you. The whole concept <laughs> of left libertarianism makes little to no sense to me, purely because I guess the left side of things by nature involves state control. Would you? Is that? Would you agree with that? Well, yeah. So there's 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 a lot of varying arguments. One of the things that we found in the in the discussion was. Um, a lot of the words that are being used had different definitions based on who's using them. Right. Right. Like, uh, I, you know, I, like from the, from my perspective, private property is an, is an inherent unalienable right. Right. Like we, that, mm -hmm. if I have private property, it's mine, I mm -hmm. own it. And, yeah. and, uh, um, there's a whole lot of discussion about, uh, what private property actually is on the left. For me, it's anything except for another person, right? Like, you right. know, I, you know, every, every, every human being has, has the right to self ownership. So, mm -hmm. so I can't own mm -hmm. another person, right? Like, and nor, nor would I want to, but, um, 
And, you know, but then so you get to the left and you start talking about private property versus personal property. And people would argue that land is, you know, rent is theft, you know, land ownership is theft. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're right. It kind of gets a little little convoluted right to left on, on, on who believes what. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you're if you're like an anarcho-communist, I guess maybe, uh, you know, which I'm not <laughs> one, but but or a syndicalist or some of these other flavors of, of anarcho, whatever. Right. And this mm-hmm. is like on the extreme, this is on the extreme bottom end of the libertarian spectrum. Yeah. Right. So, um, right or left, of course you, you could, you could make an argument, or at least I could make an argument of why somebody would want to get together with a bunch of friends, you know, mm-hmm. pool all of their resources, go buy a piece of land somewhere that's their property and live communally. though so within the bounds of their own, right commune yes, so to speak they exactly. could have their they could have whatever communist life they want now the, the market guy in me goes okay you're gonna last about six months <laughs> you're gonna find out that nobody wants to work because everything's free yeah with quotes right what's free and then uh and then you're all gonna be starving and you're gonna ask for help from the from the market community right next door <laughs> you know? right well and this is the thing i mean uh to me whenever whenever i hear especially christians talking about um Christian views on socialism and even communism. Um, I think, it, to me, my theology would sort of dictate that that can't really work, merely because we're all flawed and sinful. Therefore, if you go by a system that involves sort of willful generosity and, you know, giving of your stuff to help the, you know, the, the commune or the to help society, then that's not really going to work because there's always going to be people that abuse that just by nature. We're sinful and have a, a sinful nature and there's always going to be abuse of that system. So to me, it doesn't really make sense on how that works, especially sort of theologically, if you think of, I mean, I guess this is a, a more Calvinist sort of view, I suppose, of humanity. But I guess, um, you know, just from having a sinful nature, is it really feasible to to, to trust people to be able to operate a, a system like that, especially on the bottom left of, of things. Yeah. You know, cause you can, I, I would, the sort of top left, you know, you can maybe understand cause it's not voluntary at all really, but I don't know if the, the bottom left really could work, you know, when you think of it theologically, almost. You'd have to have everybody operating in an altruistic, you know, uh, mindset. Right. And, and that we just know that doesn't happen. And, and even, you know, if you're a Christian specifically and you look at some of the parables, right, like, um, well, just out of the, uh, just, just out of thin air, the, 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 uh, you know, the, the good Samaritan, mm-hmm. you know, here's a guy that voluntarily was acting of his own free will of his own good nature to help somebody else. There was mm-hmm. no state coercion to force him to do that. Right. So, but that's one person. And, uh, yeah. and then you look at the, the, the parable of the, of the, uh, the talents, right. The all the 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 three servants one got five talents Mm -hmm. one got ten talents one got one talent right the guy that did nothing with it and just kind of like buried it and held on to it to give it back to his master well he was the wicked servant but the two that actually multiplied their talents through you know and this is a little bit of speculation but through market exchange right through you know trading goods and services investments and things like that well they were the they were the the favorable servants right Mm. and so Now this is a little bit of a stretch, but I don't think much of a stretch. Um, I think that shows that shows a you know, that shows a market leaning of mm. Christ. You know, uh, yeah. now I'm sure. Now the, the the greater lesson of the of that specific parable was was about your um, your your spiritual gifts and mm-hmm. your talents that you have to minister to other people. Yep, and resources. But, yeah, 
Yeah, but you and your resources, right? So, but it shows an investment mind, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that, that. I think that shows a little bit of the heart of God, at least from a from a voluntary market exchange perspective. Mm. I, I could be wrong, you know, but that's just kind of that's what I read in it, and and I try when you know, like I'm sure both of you guys, or at least when I try and read uh, my scripture, I try not to do it with. I try to be objective mm-hmm. and not have I not and try not to make the scripture fit my personal view because yeah let's be honest just like you said uh none of us are righteous we're all gonna we're all we're all sinful Mm -hmm. and uh, my personal view could be very flawed and that's why i need to read scripture anyway Mm. and to to help that kind of wash over me and 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 cover the way and cover me and my sin and help me understand how to how to operate in this dark world um and frankly it's why i need a savior to begin with Mm. You know, yeah, Kevin, so. do you see a, a faith um, justification for some of the things you've ended up believing, or did faith play a part in all, at all in your journey of um, discovering libertarianism and, and how you fit into that spectrum? Um, well, yeah, actually, the thing is, and I'm going to steal a quote here from uh, uh, C.S. Lewis because I love him, and yep. he, he's got a lot of great quotes, but cool. he said, uh, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And that to me is kind of just a model of my life. Ever since I became a Christian, ever since I started following Jesus, I've realized that not everything is the way the world wants it to be. And not, and not everything is, should be the way that, the, that many people in the world in the secular world want it to be. And, and as someone of faith, of someone who follows you know, Christ, someone who tries to uh, study the Bible, um, put my life into that path. I've learned that um, philosophically, when it comes to my my political philosophy, I have limitations on what I can and can't support, right? So again, perfectly speaking about like the um, the uh, Libertarian Party, right? I love the Libertarian Party 98% of the time. Obviously, I have problems with the Democratic Party. I have problems with the Republican Party. But when it comes to the Libertarian Party, I, I, I respect and agree with most of it. But say, for instance, they have a stance on abortion, right? Now, their stance on abortion might be a fairly neutral one, about as neutral as you can be. Basically, the way that it's written out in the party platform, it says something along the lines like um, that everyone needs to decide in good conscience what they want to do and the government should have no role. And I agree with that 100%. But as someone who is... Uh, feel feels as though I am connected to, you know, the, the kingdom of heaven and, and God and Jesus, I feel that I can't be quiet on certain things, especially something that might go against teaching of the Bible, teaching of, 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 of my faith, as well as, um, you know, for argument's sake, you know, in my opinion, abortion is, it, it, it violates the NAP, the non-aggression principle, because we're talking about another person inside of a right. inside of another person. Well, this is the perspective on on whether you know an unborn child is a human life really plays a, a gigantic part in how you view abortion as a principle of liberty. Liberty, really, you know. Mm-hmm. One hundred percent, and I understand there are going to be people who are not inside the faith who will just think that a baby is just an inconvenience at this time, or not a baby, but an unborn yeah. mass of cells, a fetus, if you will. Um, even though, of course, fetus means unborn human offspring, but still, that's the size of point. Um, there is, you know, it's just the idea that even within the Libertarian Party, again, not everyone is going to have a religious faith, so I understand that not everyone agrees with that, but I have trouble supporting it 
partially because I'm a Christian, but also partially because of the fact that I do believe it violates the NAP because life is life and that life is independent. I mean, we now know through thanks, thanks to science, we now know that when it comes to an unborn baby isn't just a mass of cells and one day it's born. We know that there's a development period development period. And we now know that by 10, 11, 12 weeks, an unborn child has fully formed body, two arms, two legs, 10 fingers, 10 toes, independent, uh, heartbeats, its own blood type. You know what I mean? It's, it's, its own being. Um, so because of that, you know, I find myself sometimes at odds with certain people within the libertarian party, again, just from the NAP, the, the, uh, perspective as well as in addition to the faith issue. Hmm. Yeah, it's um I mean people kind of lump the abortion question in with um things like gay marriage and and drugs in terms of things that are uh that were considered taboo topics but now are being explored and I don't know if that's necessarily a a good way to look at them because I don't think they're necessarily equivalent in terms of um I guess you could say victimless crimes, you know, you could say that uh gay marriage and, and lesbians getting married that is what you you can consider that a victimless crime you might not agree with it spiritually but it doesn't really affect too much it might people might argue that it affects society's fabric in certain ways but um all in all it doesn't it doesn't affect me too much what someone else does in terms in their bedroom or how they get married or whatever uh, same with with drugs i mean there's obviously different categories but um, you could look at, at marijuana and see it as something that people can do in their own home. It doesn't affect too many people in most cases. Um, but where you, when you look at um, abortion, I guess if you if you view that uh, the unborn child as a human being, then I guess you're kind of compelled to make the case that that is a its own distinct person with its own distinct rights. And and uh, how like I said, how you view that uh, fetus really. It changes a lot in how you view things because if it, if you see it as uh, not being a person until it's born, then obviously you can have the view that it's pretty disposable. But um, it's interesting to talk to people about their reasoning behind it because for a long time I just stayed silent on the on the topic because I didn't really want to weigh it in where I wasn't really an expert. But um, I like to hear other people's perspectives and what they what they think on this. But um, would you agree that there's this? They seem to be lumped in as this as the same kind of the same issues in terms of rights, but um, in your case, obviously, you believe that that's a very distinct uh, issue to talk about, really, abortion. Well, sure. I mean, I understand why people would or could, you know, conflate all those issues together. But if you really think of it, those issues, like you said, are about the individual. So when someone wants to take drugs, it's about them taking drugs. If, you know, someone wants to do something which I believe might be against the Bible, but it's they're doing it, they're not, it's their conscience. It's their issue. That's fine. They can do that. But when it comes to an unborn child, again, that's an individual that's apart from the mother. You know, we the thing is, is that most people realize or believe or under the impression that when a baby is forming, it's got to be about 40 weeks before it can be born. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. But we now know um, and have proven time and time again that we can actually deliver and save a baby as early as 20 weeks and do it fairly consistently. So at what point is it no longer part of the mother what at one point you know it's either it is or it isn't so i believe it's an independent being um personally speaking but again with those other issues those are those are people making decisions for themselves and i and i do i do fully respect that there are people who will look at a pregnancy or a woman has a choice of it's her body I, and i understand where they're coming from i just don't happen to agree 
on, 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 on a phil- uh, philosophical level or physiological level. Mm. So do you believe then that um, in terms of politically that um, that you can you can almost agree that that people have the right to do it, but you can't stay silent on it? Is that where you're at? Or would you say that you're a vocal opponent of that being considered, you know, as part of the party platform? Right. Um, I do agree that people have the right to do it. It is legal. Um, I, I, I don't I don't encourage people to get one. I don't believe it's the right thing to do. If you come to me, I'm going to tell you that, but I'm not going to stop you from doing it. It is legal. Maybe one day, if enough people change their mind and decide that they don't want to do it anymore, don't want to have it to be an option. And again, I used to work in a hospital. I used to work in, in surgery, and we did a lot of quote-unquote abortions. But really, they weren't. There were what's called DNCs or, or, or dilation and curettages or ectopic pregnancies. Now, these are these are obviously either pregnancies that have already ended and they're just being removed or an unviable pregnancy. Um, but I can understand, you know, when you speak of a medical issue that someone would have to get a, an abortion. I understand that. I understand that um, you will have people who will make an argument saying, well, if it's before this time, it doesn't really count because, you know, it's not really anything. And I understand where they're coming from. I just don't happen to agree. Um, And again, I wouldn't stop anyone at this point. Again, it is law and I think it should be legal and it should be safe when people get one. I mean, you know, it's kind of terrifying to think if we went back to the 1960s and people were having back alley abortions again, how many people would die? That being said, that being said, I just... You can keep it legal all you want. I just think if, if enough people understood what was going on, understood the process, they would hopefully not want to get an abortion. Hmm. And do you do you not think then we're compelled to to make the case for uh, the unborn as if you know as if it was an act of murder? Because if you think of it, if you're thinking of that unborn child as its own distinct person, um, what is the distinction between? you know, the, the killing of that person and the killing of another random person on the street. So why should one be legal no. and one not? Correct. No, and absolutely. I mean, I don't think any of it should be legal, but considering it is, I can't stop it. Right. That being said, I do advocate for promoting laws that would um, prevent it. Mm-hmm. But again, this has, it has to be a choice of, 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 of enough people. It can't just be me yeah. and 10 friends telling the whole world you can't do this. If we get enough people on board, if we get enough people to understand what an unborn baby is, if we get them to understand what, you know, what is going on, I personally feel convicted to, to advocate mm. for, you know, passing laws eventually. But again, we're not there. Not yeah. today. Um, and I'm not, uh, I'm sort of playing a little bit of devil's advocate, although maybe that phrase is slightly ironic in terms of this uh, conversation. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm not going to say my per- personal perspective because I'm, I mean, I'm not really sure other than i don't think it's right i'm not sure exactly where i fit on the on the legal spectrum of what should be legal and what shouldn't and what should be available but um yeah i'm, I'm trying to tease out really where you stand on this so i'm not mm-hmm. uh i'm only sort of challenging that challenging you on this but um q what's your opinion on all this uh all this topic <laughs> <laughs> well, well i'll tell you uh there's a couple different issues at play with with this particular topic um one is is rights versus responsibilities and uh, so without a doubt, 100%, I believe in 100% bodily autonomy of the individual um, to include the decision whether or not to engage in activities that have consequences. And uh, so 
You choose to do drugs, you deal with those consequences. You choose to drink and drive, you deal with those consequences. You, and in, the, in, in which case, if you kill somebody behind the wheel because you are driving recklessly because you're intoxicated, you deal with those consequences. If you choose to have intercourse, you choose to accept those consequences. Um, rights and responsibilities. And maybe some people will look at that and go, okay, well, I'm a guy, right? Mm -hmm. I, what, what are the consequences for me? Well, the consequences for me, and, and this is, I chose this life, so this is a decision that I made with my wife. We're married happily for 22 years. We have three kids. I just sent one to college. I have two daughters and a son. Um, my oldest is, uh, is, is, is a girl, is a young lady, I'm sorry, she's in college. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've got another one who's a sophomore in high school and, another, and a boy now who is in the fourth grade right behind her. So um, I look at that from a perspective of a father and how do I raise my daughters? How do I raise my son? Rights versus responsibilities. Certainly they have bodily autonomy and they can do whatever they want within with within the reason within within the confines of not causing a victim right right um they have to square that with their god if they we're talking christians now right so yeah. if they're going to go off and be promiscuous or have unprotected sex or do things that are going to present the situation where they are now with child well that's a responsibility that they take mm -hmm. that child that they that child that they made through the reproductive act of intercourse uh didn't have a vote in being created you know, they didn't get to say, "Hey, I want to be here." They just, they just, they just became. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. they just—they're just here, and so now there's so now there's a there's a there's a contract there between mother and child. She created this child. She's responsible for the life of this child up to the point to where this child can take care of itself. Mm. That's my perspective. Um, and this is what you would say is you, a moral contract, I guess. This is this is an implicit contract. I would say that this is a this is a contract. Um, between mother and child, and and for that for that matter, between father and child as well, mm. you know, the, it takes two to tango, right? So um, that's an unpopular position a lot of people would take. I'm very pro-life, and I look at it obviously from a biblical perspective, from a moral perspective, but also from a legal perspective. Like like you know, anarchy doesn't mean no rules; it just means no rulers, right? Like, and uh, you know, so that's that's a spectrum of of, of libertarianism that I'm at is 100% liberty. But yet, at some point, you have to deal with the responsibility, and the, we're never going to get there if we don't recognize the fact that um, liberty is a two-sided coin. You mm -hmm. have you have freedom and rights on one side, and then you have responsibilities on the other. And uh, when you do something that creates a person, you're responsible <laughs> for the life and welfare of that person up to the point to where that person can take care of itself. Yeah. But then, but then, like we said earlier, like I, I believe earlier, the state has a monopoly on violence. And so when you say there ought to be a law, we're, what we're saying is you ought to be able to put somebody in a cage for doing X, you know? Mm -hmm. So should, should, should we, should I believe that somebody who has an abortion be locked, uh, locked up in a cage right. for that action? Um, no. Okay, but I also but I also believe that I shouldn't have to support them in that action. I shouldn't have to uh, remember. I'm a voluntarist. I believe in voluntary human interaction, right? So if this person is going to abort their child, um, maybe I don't want to affiliate myself with this person. Right, and um, my yeah, that's that, that's kind of where yeah, I'm at with yeah. it. You know, my my question was, I guess, as a natural follow-on question to um, when you, when you were talking about it being a contract. Uh, my question was, 
number one says who and number two so what so if you say this is a contract between mother and child um if if we believe that that child has a, a moral value or you know a, a value in terms of it being a person um as you consider yourself a you know libertarian how would you then what 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 are the what are the consequences of of just going out and having an abortion should there be any consequences well, or I, I alluded to that earlier. It's like, I don't think the state should lock somebody up. Yeah. Right. Um, for that. But I also don't feel like uh, we should, we should have to tolerate it. Mm. I'm not going to, you know, and you know, if I know somebody or I'm aware of somebody who's, who's, who's being reckless in that, in that behavior, then why would I, you know, yeah. why affiliate myself with them? Do you believe you there's know? any lockupable offenses? Yeah. Yeah. So when you say about the the state, well, when there's a you know, and so like yeah, so I mean maybe so crime and punishment, right? So that kind of mindset. So like we should be looking more towards you know restoration of the offense, yeah. So where there's where there's a victim, somebody should receive restitution, right? So if you've killed somebody, then the restitution or the or the uh, the restoration should be geared towards the people who are left behind, family, and close friends. Um, hard to do that. Hard to say what that is with an abortion. That's right? true. Because because the family and close friends would be well, the per- the the perpetrator, the, the, <laughs> the, the the one who's perpetrating the crime, right? With quotes, right? The crime itself of abortion. Um, so how do you make how do you make mom whole if she's the one that's 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 exercising um, this action? Mm. So that that's where it kind of gets sticky, and and it's not it's not clean, right? A lot of these liberty things are very dirty. And when you get down into like, how do you where do you draw the line, and and rights versus responsibilities, and and uh, yeah, man, you know, I, you know, I yeah, you ask a blanket question: Are there lockupable <laughs> offenses? Yeah, there are. What are they? Well, who's the victim? Right? right, that's the first question you ask: Is 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 there a victim? Well, then now we can start going down that road: Is how do we make the victim whole? Um, and in almost anything else. <clears throat> Murder gets sticky because obviously the victim is dead, but you leave behind mm-hmm. a trail of other victims. Yeah, um, theft is very clean, right? You yeah. stole something from somebody, so you repay what you stole, make them whole again. Um, so it's uh, you know some of these things get pretty sticky. So mm-hmm. that's that's a good question. I don't have a clean answer for. Well, let, <laughs> let, let's roll it back a bit. So I'll go to you, Kevin, okay. on this first. So let's talk about then the state. So we're talking about, I guess. Uh, punishment for for crime but if we talk about the role of the state in, in general what would your opinion be on the existence of the state and i'm guessing you probably both will have slightly different perspectives on this but uh, kevin what's your perspective on that question well as being someone who was you know born and raised with a state it's it's kind of hard to imagine not having a state at all right um i do support ultimately at some point in down the road a voluntary society. I think that could eventually be achieved. But in my lifetime, I don't believe that's a possibility. I believe we should be taking the steps to work towards that. So to begin with, we should start pulling back the rights of the states of of overregulation, having, you know, I can't even tell you how many agencies are within the U.S. government that are absolutely unnecessary. And even things like, you know, things that they shouldn't even be dealing with, like the uh, uh, ATF. You know, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms division shouldn't even exist. Things like this. We have to start peeling these things back layer by layer. Um, I think eventually, uh, even within our lifetime, within my lifetime, I believe we could get to a point where we are almost like a, a, a minarchist 
society where we are night watchmen, right? We have a, a society in which there is a government that exists, but only for the purposes of protecting us from outside forces and essentially prote protecting us from each other. We'll have court systems, um, some police to enforce these laws, but beyond that, there wouldn't be a whole lot. I, I, I don't think we need them involved in our schools, for instance. Like some people may or may or may not know that in the United States, we have a Department of Education. I'm older than the Department of Education. So obviously for many years, we were able to do it without. We don't need it now. There's too much control. There's too much micromanaging by the by the federal government. And it does, it does nothing but screw everything up. I mean, there's really no easy way to put it. it. There's no purpose for the government to be as big as it is. It needs to shrink, not by half, but by tenfold at minimum. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Unfortunately, the, the way we're going, I don't see that happening. Yeah, well, it's interesting because um, in the UK where I'm in, everything is, you know, we've got the National Health Service and pretty much everything is a, a state monopoly. I don't even know private schools is a very sticky area. I'm not even sure if I know of that many of them, only a handful. Um, but when I think about, you know, I was thinking about Obamacare. And when that whole thing came out, I just thought, how on earth is this a good idea to have such a massive, you know, federal program for healthcare when you know, sometimes even states can't even decide among themselves, you know, what what they want to do in their own state. So how is it a good idea to have a, a federal health program? Because um, no, not everyone just has different views. The states are too diverse. And I think there's so many different views. And that's the same for, for education, really. You know, if one state wants to teach creationism for whatever reason, and another state doesn't, then why should there be sort of a, a federal uh, curriculum, you know, that's that's standardized among all the states? It's too big a level. And this is the same, um, really, for the EU. That was, uh, you know, our version of, I guess, what you could say is um, United States. You know, our federal government for a while was the European Union. And I'm, I'm personally glad to say the UK is leaving, but um, it's the same thing where, you know, people in Bulgaria have a vote on what the UK does I think Bulgaria is in the EU anyway, but the point being that they have a um, a vote on what we do with our own fishing waters. You know, why should someone in Slovakia be able to tell um, someone in Northern Ireland where they can where they can fish? You know, it's just uh, it's crazy. But um, yes, yeah, so how you would say you know things like the Department of Education, even the Department of you know, is there a health department as well? Obviously, I'm assuming you know how do these things even operate you know when there's such diverse opinions within the government so this is my question and um i don't know if there's a if there's any way that we'll be able to see these things start to be rolled back but um i'm not sure if it looks good just based on the way things are going at the minute like you said oh absolutely yeah well the thing is they don't even know what they're doing half the time i mean there are there are organizations and then they create organizations to watch over the other organizations and the yep. problem with the way we are at least <laughs> Yes. With the way we are in the U.S., the problem with it is that everyone thinks they have the answer. So they want to get in power and they're going to start giving you the answer and they're going to put their solution in place. The problem is when they leave office, that solution doesn't go away. And then we just keep adding to it and adding to it. And now we've gotten to the point where no one even knows what anything is going on. There are, especially with the COVID-19 going on right now, right? We have people demanding that the federal government do certain things which, with, which aren't in their power. And we have other people on the state level who are demanding, demanding like, like citizens demanding the state do things that aren't on their power, and no one seems to know who's in control of what. And it's complete chaos. I mean, it's gotten better now as time gone on, obviously, but originally, it for the first two months, it, it was literally chaos here when it came to who, deciding who was in charge of what, who could say what, who could imply, you know, 
put restrictions on or recommendations on. Um, and uh, it's just it's just proven that obviously the government's too big. The mm-hmm. question is, how small can we get, and how quickly can we do it? And I guess the shame of local governors that they all, ha- you know, they all looked up at Trump to say, to say, you know, uh, what's the president going to tell us? You know, what's he going to tell us to do? <laughs> and that's, I mean, it's it should be considered, you know, by default that they're in charge if the federal government hasn't told them otherwise. You know, not that that's right in the in the first place, but um, they all seem to immediately. Um, just look up like like lemmings really you know just at, at you know like they were sheep what's what's the government going to tell me to do you know what's what what am, what am i going to be told to do for my state and uh, i guess it's a shame that that, that was the way things kind of panned out but um yeah it was it's just it was crazy to see from over here even how that was handled because at least yeah, rightly or wrongly you could say in the uk the prime minister just kind of says what to do and the the health minister just said tell everyone what to do and there's a clear message um, it gets a bit sticky in terms of devolved governments, in terms of Northern Ireland having its own rules and and Scotland having its own rules. But um, all in all, the Prime Minister tends to to, to set the the policy for the for the country. But um, how then would you say that the the COVID thing is being handled a bit better now? On the whole, as have people kind of figured out what's going on? Well, I don't know if people have figured it out. I don't know if it's handling better. I think people are just so tired of it, they don't care. So they either go along with things they don't care or agree with because they're just going to do it so they don't have any problems. And then other people are seeing signs that things seem to be dissipating. Some things seem to be improving. People are able to go back to school. Sports are starting. So people are feeling some sense of normalcy. So because of that, I think that's, and that's just more of a feel-good type thing. It's not necessarily a better thing. But sometimes that's what you need in a situation like this is you need people to feel better or feel like things are improving just because that way their attitudes will change. And once attitudes change, then other things can change. Um, now I'm someone with a medical background. I'm someone who's actually worked on a, on a pandemic before back in 09 when I was in healthcare, I was in infection control. I was actually on a, on a regional wide portion of the national task force. So I, I have inklings of what's going on and I understand why things are being done. The problem is, is I don't agree with most anything. And the problem is it doesn't seem like anybody agrees because everyone's getting their information from different sources. You go to a news media, they're saying one thing. You go to your state government, they're saying another thing. You go to the federal government and in the, the task force with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Brooks were saying one thing, but yet your you know, county, like I, I live in uh, by Chicago. We have a very large area and we have, uh, obviously the politics are very large here. Mm-hmm. And in Cook County, we have you know a health department that are saying something contradicting the governor, which is contradicting the, the, the federal government. So it's like no one knows who to trust. No one knows who to put their who to put their their yeah. value in when it comes to an opinion or how to how how they should behave or who they should you know trust. The problem is with all this, is it was avoidable. And again, what got in the way was politics. Everyone had an agenda. Now, may it be I'm on the Democrats and I want to get Trump out of office, or it might be I'm a conservative and I want to make. Our, our democratic governor and mayor look bad. I mean, who knows what the, everyone had their own reason mm-hmm. behind what they were doing, but politics got in the way. And unfortunately it doesn't seem like it's going to dissipate anytime soon, especially with the presidential election coming up now, just in a couple of months. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to pass over to you Q then. So if we go back to terms of the role of the state, then what would your opinion be on that question? For oh, like what? Just what a, the what the state should do in general. So we we got we got a little bit uh, 
sidetracked yeah. there in terms of talking about health particularly but um we, when we talk about these departments you know health education departments and all yeah. the other ones atf and yeah torpedo them <laughs> yeah they, they shouldn't exist at all um like so like in my, my mind the highest office in the land should be like your your your, your local mayor right like everything else should just be you know, and that and that's just because of the community that you live in. You want to elect somebody to help kind of manage some of the day to day details. But uh, um, is that in terms so, of the highest office that you should have to deal with, or the highest office that should yeah, exist? That that should exist. Yeah. Oh, so um, the president is out then? <laughs> oh yeah, the whole federal government get rid of it, dissolve it. Um, you know, states, lines, boundaries, borders—it's all imaginary, right? So, <laughs> like, like uh, you know, it is. Yeah, we're yeah. all playing a game. It's, we're all playing a game. So. Um, now that's that, that leads up to a lot of questions and it comes down to rights and responsibilities right you everybody has rights and everybody has responsibilities and you have the responsibility to defend yourself defend your community uh, you have a responsibility to to work with each other in a in a in a nonviolent way and if that can't be achieved then then you have the responsibility to walk away or defend yourself if it becomes a, if it becomes a problem so um, there's a lot of details that go into that and a lot of questions that, 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 that can't necessarily always be answered cleanly. Mm-hmm. But I go back to um, slavery, right? Um, people couldn't imagine who was going to pick all the cotton if we didn't abolish, you know, if we abolish slavery. Like I can't, like if you, if you own a plantation and you have all this, these acres and acres of tobacco and cotton mm-hmm. and you have, you know, uh, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, a, a stable of slaves that just go out and do the work for you. Um, your entire economy is based off of slave labor. It's going to be hard for you to imagine how you're going to get all of this cotton picked mm-hmm. if I don't have slaves doing it. Um, so there's always going to be a question, and arguably the, the, the greatest question is who's going to pave the roads, right? We always hear yeah, that one, what yeah. about my roads? Um, Everything is like that. It's like, well, I don't know, but there's a market and somebody will come up with a great idea. And uh, maybe we don't even need roads. Maybe we don't even need a department of education. Mm-hmm. If you look at how some of these kids are, are raised. They, you know, the, we're basically turning over our future to the state. And then we want to know why we have these blind loyalists to the crown, so to speak, right? To use an old, you know, American, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know colonial term, right? So, um, we have blind loyalists to the crown because the, the state is training them to be that. Uh, I'd like to see it all go away. How do you do that nonviolently? Dude, I don't know. So you know, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't have an answer well, how to get there, the next, man. I just, you know. The next question is, if, if you have a, I mean, I guess this is all, uh, it doesn't really make sense anyway in terms of how we've got to the situation. But I'm thinking of like Pearl Harbor. If something like that yeah. happens and a, a kind of malevolent rogue actor, you know, a nation of another country just goes yeah. and, and bombs, you know, rural Missouri. Is that, uh, is there any, in your mind, uh, justification for a kind of grouping together of these states to oh, yeah. for common defense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, we we should cooperatively defend each other, absolutely. But so so going back to Pearl Harbor, right? I'm glad you brought it up. Um, there there's a there's a quote that was attributed to the Japanese admiral at the time. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. And there's some debate of whether or not he ever said it, but the premise is true. Uh, we cannot defend the American mainland because there's a rifle behind every blade of grass. And uh, that's like, that's to me is that's it. That's the answer, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, be, be able to defend yourself, be able to defend your community, be in, in, in a close relationship with your friends and your allies and, 
and uh, and live peaceably amongst one another. And and if and if there's there's something going on that isn't right, well, maybe we need to take care of it. Well, when but, you th uh, when you think of the battleships and the aircraft carriers, then does, yeah. do they get built in a cooperative society? Do, do can well so. You had private, so going back to the American Revolution, you had private people owning warships, right? Right. You had, you, you know, our, you know, the privateers, basically pirates, yeah, defeated the British Royal Navy. You this know, is true. So, so I mean, it's it's not like it's unheard of, my man. So it's just it's in, unheard in a, of in a today, modern world. You know, I guess is where yeah. I'm going with this. Is it is it as feasible today as it was back in? And I guess. It, it's wrong to say those sort of ships were primitive, but and more primitive compared to today's society. I mean, I guess when I think about it, the market tends to produce better solutions than than government ever could. We've, and the LN we will probably end up with supercharged, you know, uh, aircraft carriers that can fly if we left it to the markets. To be honest, but yeah. well, yeah. So like you, you already have a fleet of ships that are owned by private organizations, right? You know, your shipping companies and all mm -hmm. these other guys. Yeah. You know, the the U.S. government doesn't own Matson. Right, they don't own Young Brothers. They don't know these are just ships that, that come out here to Hawaii, right? Like so, um, you know, they, they there might be some a corporatist agreement between right. these, you know, the, the corporation and the government, and that's a whole different episode. I'm sure we could talk about that, but uh, you already have private ownership of ships, big ships with lots of capabilities, but they're built without defensive measures because that because that's just been outsourced to to the federal government, you know. Um, it's not as if we couldn't do it. It's just that we're not doing it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I hear people talking about how even people like Mark Zuckerberg and, and such are in some ways menaces because they have such power and they're not accountable mm -hmm. because they're private people, uh, you know, yeah. private corporations, I guess. But um, when people talk about you know, even censorship on, on YouTube and things like that, then or Twitter, the next question is then who regulates those uh, kind of platforms? And I guess the same would be if someone became then too big for their boots and, and had this, it was in charge of a massive sort of cooperative military service, then is there, I guess you're kind of end, ending up in tyranny and at that stage, whenever, you know, the, the private organizations will get so big that they effectively become the state. Until, until there's another private organization that competes. This right? is true. Yep. Free market, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So um, that's that's at least the theory, right? And it, and it works. It's worked for a while in a couple of different areas until until the monstrosity of the state comes in and takes over. Of course, so mm. so you know you, you kind of go in this back and forth. It's like you're you, you know. Yeah. I think it comes <laughs> down to just freedom, right? You just yeah. be free to live. Excuse me. You just free to live, and then uh, and then let those voluntary interactions work themselves out, and in in a market environment, um, mm. if somebody becomes, let's say, McDonald's owns all of the beef. Well, we just stop eating beef, man. Well, this is you what know? I was going to say. My, like, my last sort of tangent question was going to be, um, are monopolies possible in a truly free market? Do monopolies come around that often? Um, or if they do come around, then is there any way of, of busting them, so to speak? Yeah. The theory goes that, that a monopoly can exist outside of government um, because there's always going to be some sort of competition, some sort of differentiation. Uh, in that market that that either uh, cripples a monopoly or the monopoly cripples under its own mm -hmm. weight right Cr or crumbles under its own weight and uh you know um and i guess a world without patents obviously helps with this yeah yeah inter you know that, that intellectual property myth right that whole thing that uh <laughs> myth you know <laughs> i like the way you put that <laughs> well no i mean because you know it's backed up it's propped up by the government right so um 
you know, if you don't have intellectual property rights and, and, you know, you look at, so there was this big deal not too long ago about the EpiPen. Well, who's that company? I don't remember what it was, but it was the, the EpiPen auto injector that, that mm-hmm. went from being, uh, for, for people that have, uh, uh, allergies to things like peanuts and, and, and yep. bee stings and things like that. Uh, they had this auto injector that, that, that jacked up the price because they were one of mm-hmm. one and they could do it. And everybody was so mad and they're like, Oh, look at the free market, except for the fact that it wasn't a free market. You know, these, this, this, this company existed because it was supported by the government mm-hmm. and it was allowed to do that because there was no competition. And I don't know the details, but it was like, well, you know, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to grab a number. It was like $30 an injection yeah. today. And then tomorrow it was like $5,000 for an inje- yeah. injection. And it was some, it was some ridiculous inflated price because he was able to do it, you know, but if you had an, a natural competitor that said, Oh no, 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 we're, we're, you know, yeah, we can't we can, do we that because we we'll lose, yeah. we, we'll lose our business. Right. We have to be more competitive. Yeah. You know, then it's the equivalent of walking to the next store along and saying, well, can you do this for yeah. this price? Yeah. Kevin, you're a medical Absolutely. man, so you might have perspective on these issues yeah, of healthcare. But, um, you know, we, I remember this guy, uh, Shkreli or Martin Shkreli, was that his name, that jacked up the price of a particular drug and then it you know, went up a thousand percent or something. Well, that was a, I remember that being a, a fairly big deal that people were saying this is this is why we don't want a free market because someone can turn a, you know, a pill that was two dollars and into nine thousand dollars <laughs> or something like that. Um, did you see, Kevin, from your experience in healthcare, ways that it could be improved by the government sort of stepping back and getting out of the, the businesses of the hospitals? A hundred percent. So just actually to the point that Q is making, that is the problem. The government picks winners and losers when it comes to pharma, pharmaceutical products. They're, they're with the patents and with just their ability to be able to produce things and generics and who's allowed to and who, who can and can't get approval for things. That is what's limiting everything and causing, like you said, these people to become more or less monsters and being able to take money from people who can barely even afford it. Um, now there can be some good things when the government steps in, like uh, recently the U.S. government basically lowered the cost of insulin. But again, that wouldn't even be an issue had the government not been meddling in the first place and allowing, you know, other manufacturers to be able to produce these things. It, I know many people believe that for whatever reason, that without the U.S. government, there's no way that we could survive. There's no way we could um, thrive in the world and the marketplace. I, I I don't know where people get this idea from. Maybe it's because they're so ingrained in just living this life over the years and maybe for their entire lifetime growing up in this system. But to the point when it comes to medical purposes, and it's not even just pharmaceuticals, it's equipment. I mean, there is techniques that take 15, 20 years to get approved by the FDA that could have saved tens of thousands of lives had they just allowed people to do trials earlier or to put it into the marketplace earlier. I mean, I've worked with um, companies that were trying to work on uh, tumor treatments. They had developed a tool that they thought worked well. They they had done trials. They had you know, 98, 99% success. And the FDA said, eh, we'll review it again in five years. And yet they weren't allowed to do it. And this happens all the time in medicine. Um, it comes with, with th- uh, therapeutics, again with medications um but just even techniques to be able to use certain things most people don't understand like in a surgery you can't teach certain things in a school until it's been approved or or for for a certain amount of time there are uh, there are so many restrictions in medicine it's it it, it would it, it would frighten you if you actually knew at least in the u.s how it is i don't know how it is in other countries i know that's another reason why some people in our country travel to other countries for treatment is because those areas will allow 
doctors to perform certain procedures that aren't allowed in the U.S., even though it's perfectly safe, perfectly fine, but because of the red tape, because of the 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 um, things that people, the hoops have to jump through to get things approved, it takes forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, coming from a country where the NHS is king and private private hospitals are almost unheard of in the U.K., not in ter- they do exist, but very few people will choose them unless they're wealthy. Um, there's a huge movement, especially in the unions, to um, they're trying to fight against privatizing the NHS. They call it, you know, making it less and less government and more and more uh, private companies. And I, I never, I never really understood what they were talking about when they said about this being like a great evil of the world that um, that privatizing healthcare would be so terrible. Because I thought, well, if the government's at the minute employing people to cook lasagnas in a restaurant like is that the government's business really whenever someone like could they not outsource things like this and it's it's baby steps especially where the government is everything in terms of healthcare here really so um obviously you know an ideal scenario would be maybe where the government is just not involved in hospitals at all you could say but um in terms of like why is the government hiring chefs why is the government hiring cleaners why is the government hiring people you know to do maintenance in these buildings why is this not all already outsourced to, to private companies and i never really just got the this movement with the with the healthcare unions in terms of against they're against privatizing healthcare because they claim it'll it'll lower um the standards of treatment and it'll it'll mean that people then will have to come in and, and uh i see at the minute where it's sort of single payer healthcare system where you, it gets comes out of your taxes so um and everyone just pays basically a it just comes out of your tax percentage but they'd say oh you'll have to come in and then you'll be charged for your your treatment and all these things but at the minute i'm not that happy with what i am being charged for because the minute i'm being charged for a lot of treatments that i don't want to give my money towards you know people are going in and, and having cosmetic operations that effectively my tax money is paying for so um yeah, it's, I never really understood this privatizing healthcare as being a bad thing, to be honest. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, and even then, in the United States, insurance is king when it comes to healthcare, right? The problem with that is that even in the insurance industry, the government is meddling too much and picking winners and losers and allowing certain people to thrive in certain areas and restrict people. Like, we can't get insurance over state lines, which is the most ridiculous thing in the world. We're supposedly the United States of America, yet... If I want to work with an insurance company in Indiana or Wisconsin, I don't have that opportunity, really? even though it would save me tons of money. Hmm? Really? I'd, I've never heard of that. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh, that's, that is. You can't, so you can't get insurance over state lines. You can't get insurance over uh, international lines, obviously, as well. But we should have an open market where I can compete or I can work with people to compete with being able to get insurance from a different area. Now, let's, what's don't the argu- me wrong. What's there, the argument against that? Why would, why would that be limited? Is it, it's all about control. It's all about that way they can limit what can be covered, what can't be covered. The state on the state level, they have more control over it. It's it's a it's a it's a matter of keeping things more organized, as they argue. But really, it's the exact opposite. And really, it's just a, a control issue again. Whenever the state or the may it be on the state level or the federal level get a new power, they they're not going to release it. Hmm. So they're not going to open up, you know, themselves to be able to lose control and to lose power and to potentially lose money. Yeah. This is true. Um, wasn't it? Wasn't it Mark Twain that said something? Maybe it wasn't Mark Twain, but he said something like, "There's nothing in the world more permanent than the, than a temporary government program." <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, look. Well, look at the institution of the income tax in the, in the United States. Back, was, I think, it was like 1913 under Woodrow Wilson. He promised it was going to be a one percent tax on the top one percent earners only and forever, and that's how they sold it. You know, but obviously that was never going to be. 
but that's the way it is. And that's the way that it always is with the government. Anytime you have the, the state who wants to either increase, like even right now, I'm in Illinois. We are in the midst of, uh, on this ballot, we're going to have a, a potential amendment to the U, to the Illinois Constitution that will basically allow the Illinois government to raise taxes at will without without uh, residents' votes ever again. And wow. I can guarantee you, I'm in, I'm in a blue state, they're going to approve it. I, I almost crazy. guarantee it. Well, from, yeah. I don't, I don't want to... Um pick on Illinois specifically, but I think you guys have got a lot of problems at the minute. I've seen even the the mayor of Chicago is an absolute mess in terms politically and just what what's going on. And um, I guess this leads on to the things like uh, riot control. I was having an interesting uh, conversation with someone on Twitter that uh, you know one night just about in terms of how how does you know, without the federal government intervening then. And the current situation, how do we, uh, how does the president clamp down on rioters and people that are causing unrest in cities? And uh, we're having an interesting conversation about that, but it'll be interesting to hear your perspectives on that. Uh, I'll even go to Q on this. You know, what's your perspective on, um, you know, these kind of, um, this controlling this kind of civil unrest that's that's going on everywhere at the minute? Yeah. Um, property rights, man, you know. Uh, you should be able to defend your property. And if, uh, if you got riots going on in your neighborhood and, you know, they riots come walking down, you know, my street, my, my property, uh, you know, I don't ever want to, you know, I, I hesitate to say what I would do because it gets, it gets, it gets recorded and soundbited. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, uh, you know, uh, I have tools at my disposal and I think everybody should have those same tools at their disposal to protect themselves and their property. And um, you look at where these riots are not occurring. They're not occurring in places that have um, a high gun ownership rate. Mm. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know how yeah, else to say that well, without, maybe, without sounding too you know, nasty. Maybe right? we can talk a little bit about the Second Amendment and, and why. Because yeah. some people will say that, um, again, coming from a UK perspective, that it's crazy how many guns there are in America. And especially, they talk about this... Um, how it's it's almost the the christian wing that's more into their gun rights and stuff mm-hmm. um is there any conflict at all between gun ownership and this kind of uh, i guess it's a violent industry but is there any conflict yeah. between that and your faith at all in your opinion do you defend yeah yourself? There, the, there's gonna be um you know because because you look very clearly in you know in the ten commandments and all that stuff and and we and we it says thou shalt not murder thou shalt not kill right um there's there's a heavy 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 responsibility that 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 you that you take on when you squeeze the trigger in anger and uh that's i don't you know i don't know how to say it so so you first of all understand that every human being is made in the image of god every single one of us and so when you squeeze the trigger in anger to put down the image of god right even if that image of god is doing some nasty evil horrible things you're gonna have to, you know, you're gonna have to explain yourself. There's gonna be some, there's gonna be a day of reckoning, so to speak, and and I think every Christian probably inherently knows that, um, but, you know, the right to life is the right to life. You know, life, liberty, and property. Like if you see somebody that's threatening somebody else's life, somebody else's property, and and you can solve that problem without without killing that other person, then then absolutely you should do that. If that if that squeezing of the trigger is the last uh resort and you have to do that and you have to i mean you you have to i think um 
but that's got to be the angle. It can't just be a bunch of guys walking around. I mean, and just you know, who's going to enforce? I don't know, but but like, it can't just be a bunch of bunch of macho morons walking around, just you know, brandishing weapons all over the place, uh, thinking that that's not going to elicit some sort of response because it uh, that also elicits a response. Now, it's not necessarily violent, you, but you're portraying an image that you know I I personally wouldn't have a problem with because. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm okay with weapons. I have no problem with weapons, being around them and operating them and, and all that mm. other stuff. But, but people who aren't educated in that or don't know enough about it and haven't, haven't practiced with it, it's going to elicit a very specific response. So yeah. um, your riots aren't necessarily happening in areas where the threat of retribution from the local population is high. They're happening in places where they can get away with it. Right. And... Uh, I hate to say it, but that's 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 saying mm. something. That's that's something that we need to consider. That's something we need to look at and go. Okay, well, maybe we should limit the amount of of gun regulations that are out there. And and uh, you know, again, what's the role of the state? You mm. know, the state, the state. You know, the, there's this whole myth about this this social contract, and some people have different ideas about it. But I feel like the state has voided the social contract in a way, if there ever was one, um, when. You know the 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 U.S. federal government, um, the Supreme Court has ruled multiple times that the police are not there to defend you. They don't exist to defend you. They exist to enforce the laws. Mm -hmm. So if the state isn't going to defend me, and I need to defend myself, well, then that's what I need to do. And I think everybody yeah. needs to have that understanding. Well, the state has shown themselves to be pretty impotent when it comes to this. Uh, all, yeah. You know, because we've seen. And I heard I heard in the news there um, that um, there was a certain action that the president took in order to, to start prosecuting some people on a federal level that were being let out by the local um, you know, DAs and prosecutors and things like that. Um, but we saw that you know people were just getting getting picked up and then let out again. And you know people were saying you know the, the governors were telling certain areas you know the the police need to stand down and let people just you know burn a life's work to the ground and. Uh, it's obviously shown that there needs to be at least some kind of threat for of of retribution for when you do that to someone you know it makes sense to me that there would be a deterrent that people would you know that people could possess in order to to stop that from even happening in the first place but you know it's it's an interesting sort of conversation and i'm not sure exactly what what no yeah so the question you asked was is there a conflict between my faith and 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 taking a life and there absolutely is a conflict and there necessarily should be mm -hmm. you know um there should be there should be a conflict there right yeah. <laughs> you know like right like you right, should yes <laughs> you should not take that lightly you know um absolutely but then there also needs to be an understanding that there are ramifications for your actions and if you're going to come into somebody's neighborhood and you're going to loot and burn, uh, mm. there are ramifications for that action. Yeah. So when you say right. there, there's a conflict, um, are you also saying that there's a justification in circumstances? Or are you saying that that conflict is, is means that there, there's no circumstances where you should end up having to take a life? Or are you saying that it would be sinful to take a life in, in circumstances? Well, yeah. So, so we live in a fallen state, man. You know, there's a lot of conflicts, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, you know, yeah. I, I don't know how else to answer that yeah. question. I, you know, um, if, if this was the garden of Eden before the, before the fall, you know, we were all living, you know, in a, in a, in a perfect world where there was no sin and there was no, uh, problems, you know, when, with regard to this stuff, then, then we'd have to be having a different conversation. Yeah. 
Um, well, the reason. So yeah, yeah, there, there is a conflict, uh, but but absolutely, there is a reason. There mm-hmm. is potentially in this fallen world a, a, a reason why you might need to take a life to defend mm-hmm. the life of another. And the reason I ask is because, uh, unfortunately, yeah, I, I'm I'm friends with a lot of people who would say that there is no justification. And I had someone actually on the the first episode of this show that was very much pacifist and said there there really is no justification for taking a life in any mm. circumstances and in some cases that does you know they would say that um i don't know if, if alex who i had on would necessarily say this but i do know people that would say even when it comes to self-defense you know you shouldn't even kill someone in that circumstance if someone comes in brandishing a gun into your house to, to kill your wife then it's not some people would say it's not justified to, to act in that circumstance and i'm not sure i agree with that because just from from my views but kevin what's your opinion on on you know this self-defense and and gun rights well i think everyone has right to defend themselves like and very much in the same way that q was saying it it is something you wrestle with to an extent because you have an instinct naturally to want to defend yourself you know i was raised in a country where people are promoted to defend themselves but then as a follower of Jesus, I, I would, wouldn't, wouldn't want to necessarily do it. That being said, in the moment, I have a feeling I would. Um, like I have friends who I've, who I've uh, known for a number of years who would have told me that when we talked about this subject, this exact subject, they said, well, if someone came up with me at a, with a gun and pointed at me and they shot me, I would just go to heaven. So I, I really wouldn't care. Now, I understand where they're coming from. I mean, I, I think ultimately that's what we're all going. So, but that being said, in that moment, if someone has a weapon or a gun or is threatening me or my wife or my family, I have no doubt I would defend them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know how, how I feel after the fact, but <laughs> in the I'm, moment, I'm just I not no sure that there is a, a moral problem with that, though. Um, I think when it comes down to um, which is the loving action to see someone slaughtered before your eyes or to prevent that happening and it, it raises sort of questions about the greater good and things like that you know it naturally leads on to those questions but um i'm just not sure that people make the argument about jesus saying you know those who live by the sword will, will die by the sword and things like that um mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I, i'm still I'm, I'm not convinced that that necessarily applies in all in cases of self-defense in a lot of circumstances because I don't I don't quite see how it could be the loving action to not defend someone that was you know their life was in danger you know so I'm not really sure where I stand on that right I fully agree I mean I fully agree like that's what I was saying I, I know many people who say different but I just couldn't stand by and watch someone I love someone I care about or even just someone I know be attacked and have no one come to the defense. I mean, mm-hmm. even if I didn't have a gun, I might pick up another weapon. Might be a anything. Who knows? Mm-hmm. It might just be my fists. But I, I wouldn't. I couldn't stand idly by. And maybe that isn't you know quote unquote very uh, Christian. But I may. Am I, but to your argument and to even Q's argument, I think it is. I think you can't just stand there and watch someone you care about be mm-hmm. hurt when you can do something to stop it. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the ATF earlier as well, um, mm-hmm. in terms of federal regulation for firearms. Uh, what level should that be on? Should there be regulations for particular? Should people be allowed to own um, machine guns? I hear a lot of people saying about people shouldn't be allowed to own semi-automatic weapons. And I'm like, so that's pretty much everything. So it doesn't really make sense. But some people, exactly, people yeah. tend to think semi-automatic means you capable of mass murder. But I don't know. Anyway, an M1 Garand is semi-automatic and it doesn't look that scary. So, um, 
Right. Anyway, so the point being, what at what level should these regulations should should there be any? Should they be enforced? No, there should be no regulations. I mean, when you look back through our history, I'm not saying every person should be able to loan to should be able to own a tank, but I'm not saying that they shouldn't be. When you look back at the Revolutionary War times, a lot of the cannons that were used by people in the in in the, in the states or, or in the colonies were privately owned, right? Even in the Civil War, people had privately owned weapons that they used. Um, I, I, it, it, why does it matter if, if one gun will shoot faster than the other? They're both still going to shoot. So either they should be legal or they should not be. And shouldn't it be up to the government to tell us what we can and can't own, how many we can own, how much ammunition we can buy. I mean, I, I, I personally am not even a gun owner, but I have many friends who are. And I see the, the, the hoops you have to jump through to even just purchase a gun, let alone the harassment they get or the threats of, well, well, it also depends too. Like where I live, again, I, I we have a lot of regulations. We, 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 up until a number of years ago in the Chicagoland area, you weren't even legally allowed to own a handgun. Um, they actually had to sue and then go to the Supreme Court for them to overturn that. But again, you go right over the border into Wisconsin, they have open carry. So it's, you know, night and day difference depending upon where you live. But generally speaking, I don't think the U.S. government or any government for that matter should be telling you you can and can't own something. Even if um, even if you're a convicted felon, once you've served your time, you served your time. Once you're back out on the streets legally, you should be allowed to own a gun. So I don't, I don't really believe that there should be any restrictions, generally speaking. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting to hear your perspectives on this because I come from somewhere where nobody owns guns. The police barely even own have you know firearms in the UK. I think the Northern Ireland police is pretty much the only police service that actually carries you know a gun on them on their person <laughs> when they're when they're on duty. So it's uh, we come from very different worlds in that regard. But as soon as I, I was sending this saying this to someone on Twitter um, in a comment, but as soon as I moved out into my own place, you know, when I got married, I immediately understood why people want to, to have the ability to protect themselves. And uh, it's it's weird. You almost feel powerless when you're when you have your own home and you don't have anything to defend yourself with. And I'm envious of people who do get to live in society where that is possible. Um, a lot of people will try to argue that Christians shouldn't own guns, but um, I'm just saying that my instinct would be, yes, I, I feel like I would like to have one in the house for protection. You know, that's just, it, it's strange you coming from a society where and where there are no guns then immediately to feel like, oh, I kind of wish I did have a gun, you know. It, it, was, it was an interesting sensation. Absolutely. And actually, that reminds me of an interesting comment I heard. I think it was yesterday. I can't remember who the person was. I apologize. But it was on television. They were talking about this situation about guns in the U.S., and they were saying that some people feel comfortable owning guns and some people don't. But technically, everyone in the U.S. owns a gun. And they clarified this by stating that those of us who actually don't possess the gun, our guns are the police. You literally call 911, you tell them to show up with their guns, and they bring your guns for you. Right. And they're the ones who use them. So essentially... And you've paid for that gun with your taxes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, I'm not saying that's the way things should be, but I'm saying that's the way things are. And when seconds count, that gun is only minutes away. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I fully, fully agree. No, but I, but I thought it was an interesting concept. Well, that way people would look at that as as being like their gun. Oh man, it's crazy just to hear the calls of defunding the police, and then I don't know they're going to send a social worker out to your house to try and you know I don't know. It's like almost like talking about a, a hostage situation. <laughs> you have to send someone to persuade someone not to shoot to shoot you. Like this doesn't really make sense to me at all. I don't understand this call to defund the police. Uh, 
Q, I'm not. I think I saw that you were an ex-military man yourself. I mean, you might have interesting perspectives on these things, but um, it doesn't really. It doesn't make sense to me. This whole idea of defund the police and get rid of protectors. You know. Well, well, it's an incomplete thought. You know, when you say when most people say defund the cops, defund the police, there's there's a there's an incomplete thought there. They they don't finish it. They don't take it all the way through, um, because there does need to be somebody you know to you know to keep some sort of order in the area again anarchy is means no rulers not no rules right mm -hmm. so there needs to be some level of order and uh so if we're going to defund the cops you're not going to get a lot of argument out of me uh, on that but uh, there needs to be a completion of that thought then what what is that right. what do we do then and and social workers aren't the answer right so it's the ones who want to defund the cops the loudest are the ones who want to you know disarm the people the most right, right? Yeah. so it's like it's just it's not it's an incoherent it's not it doesn't make sense you know there's there's no completion of of, of thought so um that's kind of where i'm at on that mm -hmm. and as far as being a being a being a veteran yeah i was in the navy for 13 years and um i did four western pacific deployments and i've been all over the pacific and indian oceans and seen all kinds of things been into the, the middle east persian gulf horn of africa um anti-piracy anti piracy interdictions mm. and incidentally my last deployment we were on we shot 17 tomahawk missiles into yemen um and we there was no declaration of war there was no military uh thing that was going on there there was no operation there we let the yemen the yemen air force take credit for the strike um and that was when i started thinking maybe there's something else <laughs> right. here that you know that that uh that, that we uh that we're doing mm. and you know, because you know, we knew about. You know, I I was I remember September 11th like it was yesterday, and so I was all all liquored up on that whole idea, of of if you're not with us, you're against us. I told you I come from that whole that whole line of thought as mm -hmm. far as being neoconservative, right? Um, so, but that was I would say probably the beginning of it. Is I remember being uh, on watch, uh, running the engineering plant, um, and bringing the electrical plant up to a condition to support a missile strike. And thinking to myself, okay, we're about to do this, and it happened. And uh, and thinking to myself, we're nowhere near Iraq. We're nowhere near anywhere that we should be shooting anybody, right? We're out mm -hmm. here to we're out here to protect the shipping lanes from pirates, you right. know, off the Horn of Africa, Somali pirates, and all of that. So then we launched seventeen Tomahawk missiles into Yemen. That's not what. We weren't yeah, here for that. Yeah, that's what we signed <laughs> up for. Yep. <laughs> you know, like what's that all about? You know. So honestly, that was probably one of, one of the one of the little things that you just. And it's not a little thing because people died, obviously. But um, these these little things in your life, or at least my life, where I just go, when you start seeing the man behind the curtain, so to speak, and you start seeing that things are not mm. what what they're supposed to be, mm. or what you what you were led to believe they were. And when did you, you know? leave military service? Or are you still? involved 2010 okay 2010 yeah i got out um stayed in hawaii i was you know stationed in pearl harbor stayed in hawaii and uh, i work in the shipyard industry now uh, based off of what i learned in yeah. the navy of course you know um <clears throat> and so i so i fix ships and and that's why I, that's when you you know we talk about that's why i went back to well nobody owns the mats and ships nobody owns the young brothers ships right like yeah. these are all private organizations you know i get the government doesn't that's what i mean the government mm -hmm. doesn't own these ships these are all privately owned ships that could be outfitted with defensive you know mm -hmm. equipment but um and it was that knowledge that made me think like that but but uh yeah no that's 
being in the military and, and, and you know, I, I was in the Navy, so it's, it's not fair to say that like, uh, uh, there's some guys that have actually been in places and seen some really horrible things and, and, uh, had to, had been shot at and returned fire. And I'm fortunate enough that I've not had that opportunity uh, to have to do that. So, um, I, I was sitting on a ship and we launched 17 tomahawks into Yemen, uh, a country that we were not at war with. Mm. You know, and yeah, so that's that's the extent. Uh, that's the extent of my combat action, of course, and that that means that there's been no combat action. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. So you were you involved in a a mainly, um, you know, you were saying you're a mechanic. You're involved behind the scenes, really, in a lot of those. Things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's. I mean, we're saying about um, it not being a complete thought. What, what is the completion of the thought in your mind when you say you're not going to argue against defunding the police, but it's not a complete thought? What's, what's your completion, yeah. completion of that? The, the complete thought is, is, is making people aware that they are responsible for their own defense. They're responsible for their own safety. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to defund the police, which, okay, <clears throat> it's not necessarily a bad idea, um, you have to have something else there, Right. And uh, because, you know, I, I see the same thing everybody else sees. And there's a, there's a, definitely an increase in, in, in police violence or at least an increase in visibility of police violence. It's either getting worse or it's always been this bad and we're just seeing it now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, it's like uh, we need to do something about it. And if defunding it is a way to go, then perhaps we need to um, all of us be a little bit more defensive minded. Yeah. You know. I live in Hawaii, and, and so going back to the whole gun thing, right? So um, it's illegal to carry a weapon in Hawaii, period. Uh, in fact, Young, Young versus the state of Hawaii is going to be heard by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals later this month uh, in California. And um, it, it's an en banc hearing, actually. So there's going to be a 10-judge panel because the state already lost this in the court. Mm-hmm. And they've appealed, and so we're going, they're going back there. And depending on the ruling, of course, we'll probably see this go to the U.S. Supreme Court. But uh, technically, yeah. Hawaii is a may issue, may issue state. Uh, so if you request to carry a concealed weapon, they may issue a permit. But in reality, it's a non it's a no issue state. They haven't yeah. issued one um, since Magnum PI. Right? So <laughs> I don't see how. I mean, to me, it doesn't take uh, ten judges and, and multiple cases to to read really what is a couple of lines or a couple of sentences in terms of. Yeah. Keeping bare arms shall not be infringed. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that seems fairly uh, yeah. self-explanatory. But um, I, no, I was talking last week with, um, well, sorry, I should say on this week's episode that was just launched, uh, I was talking to a police chaplain in Tennessee, and uh, you know, I I agreed with him, and I do agree that uh, that the police deserve. I'm, I I would say I'm naturally supportive of a police service in terms of I think that's a in terms of not. In, I agree with it in terms of people should voluntarily um, support a service of, of of men that can protect their community, whether that's run by the state or whatever. You know, that's another topic. But I do agree with the police service. And uh, if you want that police service to act to be to, to be able to do their job well, then naturally you should agree that they should be trained well and outfitted well and paid reasonably well. So this thing of, of defund the police to me makes a little sense because I think if there is to be a police, which I probably naturally would say, yes, I think there should be, I want them to be a, a police that is able to do their job correctly Yeah. Um, yeah. and do it well, you know, and 
don't know if either of you guys have any opinions on whether you think there should be a police force or not, or one that's run by the state, but um, I, I don't think that defunding them is the right solution because it's kind of like Obamacare and that it puts in a sort of half-assed version of a healthcare plan that's sort of yeah. neither single-payer nor... Um, that nor just a, a free health you know free market healthcare system it's kind of a weird mixture so i want it to be done well if, there, if there's going to be an argument for deep funding the police let's have a conversation about it let's see what are the justifications what can be pulled back in terms of spending or what can be increased even and, and voluntarily what about a market-based approach you know um one of the things that, that, that I've often considered is, well, we already have it in place in a lot of places. You, you, get, a, you get a private security firm that uh, watches your warehouse for you or your, uh, your gated community or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your, racquet, your racquetball club <laughs> or, or your golf, you know, country club or whatever, or your high school even, yeah. right? You have all these different pri- private security firms that, that go into, they're hired to do this thing. Um, and they all compete for business, right? And, and uh, so... I think you guys, even in the UK, have a have a system that's actually working very well, from what I understand. I cannot remember all the details on it, but you have you have private security firms that are acting as as local law enforcement based off of you know community contracts, right? So yeah. imagine for a moment that that you have um, you know a, a state a state monopoly on violence in the law enforcement industry, and you have your rights routinely being violated while cops go up on paid administrative leave. And, uh, you know, they come back, maybe they get a promotion, maybe they get fired, but they get picked up by another agency. Or you could have a competing, uh, multiple competing firms. So when your rights are violated, you can cancel your contract with with this company and renew a contract with another company. Uh, Do you think the public will be better or worse served by that? And do you think that that would make for better or worse law enforcement agencies, uh, basically, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I I think the market has an answer for everything. If, If you're not going to... Uh, if you're going to defund the police, you know, why, let, let's, let's, let's look at a market-based approach. Mm-hmm. That's one of those complete, that's what I meant earlier talk to about like completing the thought. Like, yeah, you can, you can, can are we going to just do away? Yeah. Are no we just going to do away with cops? Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but what's the, what's the answer? Yeah. You, you know, what you, do you fill that void with? You can with? do because, away you know, with police departments, but you can't do away with a means of protection really for. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I, Kevin, I don't know what it's like in, in Illinois at the minute with this. Uh, I'm sure it's it's been crazy with... Um, I'm not sure exactly Chicago as a city, how it's been affected with rioters and looters, but um, I'm sure the call has been equally loud to defund police. Um, what do you see? You're you're in a democratic state. Um, what do you see as being a reasonable um, sort of next step for people that are interested in promoting libertarianism in terms of what how could the police then be um improved upon in a way that could be stomached by people in a democratic state what would be a reasonable next step because you talk about obviously this is a multi-generational project that's that that's uh, you know to move towards a more free society so what would be then something that perhaps could be introduced in a state like chicago that people might actually or in illinois sorry that people could maybe stomach it's actually an excellent question. <laughs> um, the thing is, is that, like you said, I am very pragmatic when it comes to solutions. I, I don't think things are going to happen overnight. That being said, when I've talked to many people who I know who support defunding, defunding the police, um, I understand why they're making the argument that they, that they are. They feel that too much money is being put into policing, not enough money is being put into whatever community development. I understand that. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. Um, I think 
we could have a free market solution that could work as long as we have policing. Um, but again, it would have to be a switch. In Illinois, boy, so in Illinois and Chicago specifically, we have a very dense population. So you couldn't just remove the police. I mean, mm -hmm. it, 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 would be, it would be beyond chaos. It would literally be people dying in the streets, even more so than we already are, because as you probably know, Chicago is pretty well known for shootings yep. uh, and, and, and our death rates for, uh, on the weekends especially. So without any police, that, that, that just wouldn't happen. So as far as defunding, I think it's about taking that money and, and applying it more properly in the police department. Instead of trying to make our police department a revenue-generating machine, which is basically what it is, I mean, most people don't understand. Many cops in this area especially, they work under what people refer to as quotas. They're not necessarily quotas. But what you are is every quarter you have a, 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 a review with your whoever it might be, your sergeant, mm -hmm. your superintendent, whoever it might be in your, in your specific department, and you get a review as to how you're producing for your job. Are you writing enough tickets? Are you getting enough arrests? And if your numbers are low, you can, you are actually under the threat of either being um, demoted, transferred, or even terminated. Mm. So because of this mentality of we have to produce money, they are doing things that are not only improper, but illogical. And on top of it, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are a number of prisons in in the United States that are private and they're completely privatized, which in theory sounds kind of interesting because it's a free market solution. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the way the contracts are written, they have to actually maintain certain percentages of being filled. In fact, even some contracts that have been agreed to and written, actually the state and or federal government have to actually increase that percentage over a certain period of time, maybe five years or eight years. So our system is not built necessarily on, on protecting or even enforcing laws. It's about another arm of the government being able to do what they want, control how they want, and make revenue out of it. Mm. So because of all those steps that go into it, there is no simple black and white solution. I think you cannot, you, you cannot nor will they allow you to remove um, the police. I mean, they just that's not going to happen. They'll allow the conversation to happen, but they won't actually do it because, again, it is a huge revenue genera generating machine in, mm -hmm. in every major city in the U.S. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I guess I'd never really considered that aspect because um, I know places, was Austin is going to blow up their police building. I don't know whether that's just a gesture. Obviously, they're, they're producing some levels of policing, but uh, Austin, Texas is going to blow up their their old police headquarters as a, a symbol of, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it's a symbol of, to be honest. Lawlessness, maybe. I, who knows? Um, but is there is there like then a step that maybe is not quite defunding the police, but something that would head more towards a, um, a libertarian um, solution to policing that, you know, that could be a, a logical thing that somewhere in between? In your opinion? Well, I think, again, over, over time, it would be beneficial to be able to have a privatized and uh, policing force. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that scares a lot of people when you hear that because when they think, well, private companies are, are going to start running everything, well, then obviously they're going to become corrupt. They're going to start trying to control things and monopolize things. And that could happen, but hopefully the market would correct it. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, from a libertarian perspective, I mean, again, 
there are different views on libertarianism. So some people are going to want to have complete voluntary states. Some want, you know, a minarchist state. And again, I come from more of a, a pragmatist view. I actually belong to the pragmatist caucus. So I, I have this understanding that, that baby steps are the important things, as long as we continue to walk in the right direction and never step backwards. Mm -hmm. So as far as, as far as defunding the police, no, I don't think that's an option. Reforming the police, sure, but again, people can't even agree what the police are even for, right? So some people believe that the police are here to protect you, and but but like we now know, the Supreme Court has said multiple times that no, they're here to enforce laws. So we mm -hmm. have to even get on the same basis and foundation of understanding what police forces are for, and then from there you can build. Yeah, it's interesting because the Supreme Court obviously operates on a federal level, and uh, the police forces do not generally operate on a federal level mm -hmm. other than really the FBI. So it's that's an interesting sort of way. How can you sort of reconcile those things? You uh, it's Again, the federal government really intervening in, in things that they probably shouldn't be. And I know the Supreme Court's job, obviously, is to rule on these things. But, um, yeah, you, there's, there's too many places, in my opinion, where people are, are meddling in things that shouldn't be meddled in and things are going places and reaching people that they shouldn't be reaching at all. Um, I don't want to keep you guys too much longer, but I guess we'll finish on the, the nice topic of, of taxation then, I suppose. A nice easy one. So we're talking about defunding then. So um, are, is taxation theft in all cases or uh, is, what do you think, Q? Yes. <laughs> Kevin? <laughs> no, expand on that then. <laughs> no, actually... Uh... <laughs> No, taxation is is theft, man, and uh, you know it's it's one of those things that um, income tax, particularly, you know, property tax is another one, sales tax. If you're if you you know, so what what income tax actually is, right? You're working for the benefit of the state to whatever percent, mm -hmm. right? To whatever percent you're 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 taxed at, right? So uh, it's 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 not just theft; it's slavery, right? So if you're working for the benefit of somebody else against your will, what is that? And what, how, what would you call that? You know, I call it slavery, right? So, so not only is taxation theft, but income taxes, income tax is, is slavery in my mind, at least. So if it's like a 40% tax rate or a 30% tax rate or a 20% tax rate, you're a 40% slave or a 30% slave or a 20% slave. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's my perspective on it. Um, there's basically nothing the government provides that can't be accomplished through uh, market exchange. That can't be accomplished through voluntary interaction. Um, that's my opinion. And then property taxes are probably among the worst. And that and that if you if you own a piece of property outright, but you still have to pay taxes on it, you don't really own that. You're just leasing it from the mm -hmm. government. Yep. Which means they're your master. Which means you're still a slave. Yeah. You know, like, you know, so we can go on and on around, around this whole thing. It's like uh, uh, there's nothing the government does that can't be provided through a market. Nothing. Some taxes and, and, can, and, you know. Sorry, I was going to say some taxes so. can be, uh, you can argue about whether they're right or wrong. But when, I think, when you think of things like capital gains tax, inheritance tax, I can't look at things like this and, and logically, I can't fit my mind around these in any way that doesn't end up with me thinking that, it's just another way for the government to take more money that they don't need off your hands. Like inheritance yeah. taxes, that's just a, you know, we call it the death tax. You know, it's, yeah. it's it doesn't make sense. I, I just do not get it in any way, you know? Well, yeah, no, it's, and it, and it is, it's, it's an opportunity for the government to get more loot, man. And, uh, they, 
they will never pass up an opportunity to take money. And if you look at what taxes is, what taxation is, a lot of times they put like a like a gas tax or a cigarette tax, and and the idea is that okay, this you know this is not an original thought, right? You guys have probably heard this before. You know, gas tax. What does that do? That 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 like encourages people to drive less. A cigarette tax mm-hmm. encourages people to smoke less. An income tax encourages people to what work less. Like, okay, <laughs> we really want to do that, right? So. Um, so, and I would even make the argument that, that in the U.S. we have this big push for a $15, $15 an hour minimum wage. The only people who really make out on that are the tax people because people earn more money, they, get, they, they pay more taxes. Ultimately, if you understand anything about economics, at the bottom end, you have the minimum wage, which, you know, it's all arbitrary anyway. Mm-hmm. But at $15 an hour, that increases the price of everything else, you know, around it because it's all aggregate, right? The price of a product is, is the result of all the aggregate in- input costs, right? So your labor costs are gonna impre- increase that cost. So in a very short amount of time, the quick increase in somebody's mm-hmm. income is gonna, be, is gonna be flatlined by the increase in all the costs associated mm-hmm. with it, right? Um, it's sort and, of inflation, and, and, and really? So associated with life around it, yeah, it's like a, like a backdoor inflation. And the only people who win are the tax people because they get to tax you more. Mm-hmm. So, and the easy argument against this sort of federal uh, minimum wage is, if if you just expand it to a global level, which isn't really that that much of a stretch, because a federal yeah. a federal minimum wage is about as uh, you know it makes the same amount of sense as a global minimum wage in terms of you could have someone working for you know basically nothing somewhere like India or in a sweatshop in Bangladesh, you know if you bump yeah. them up to fifteen dollars an hour along with everyone else in California where or London yeah. where you have to pay outrageous, you know, kind of prices for property, it, it makes little to no sense really at all. It makes no sense, yeah. I mean, why not fi- why not 5 million dollars an hour? I mean, really. Yeah. Since we're being arbitrary about this whole thing, let's let's try. I didn't mean to hijack the topic. I didn't mean to turn it into the minimum wage <laughs> no, discussion. But. That's all relevant, you know, absolutely. Uh, yeah. so Kevin, yeah. what, uh, taxation is it theft in your mind? Would you call it that? Or you're you're more pragmatic obviously. What would you say taxation is then to you? Well, I do agree that it is theft. Okay, first off, that being said, trying to stop the government for t- from taking taxes is, is not going to be an easy task, and it's not going to happen easily um, in any way, shape, or form. Any any imagination, any stretch of imagination, it's going to be something that might take almost to the point of destroying everything we have in the sense of our government, removing the government for de- to be able to do something like that. Uh, again, I don't know if anyone. I don't know. Some people wish for that to happen, I suppose. Some people don't. Um, Taxes, in and of themselves, at least on paper, don't seem evil. But they really are because they're taking your wealth away. We can pay for most of these things ourselves. We look at the United States. Most people can appreciate the fact that the United States voluntarily gives money to organizations at higher levels than most other countries combined after already being taxed. So if we didn't have to actually be taxed, we could take that money and then voluntarily give it for services like policing departments, fire departments, maybe a national defense, whatever it might be. Um, another thing to think about this is is that the U.S. government or state government for that matter, but we'll use the U.S. government for this example, does not do very well when it comes to efficiency. Recently, uh, most people have probably heard the story about Elon Musk and he created that, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the, the ship, but the ship that brought the uh, astronauts back down to Earth. When this was originally proposed back in 2008 under Obama, they got a bunch of experts together through NASA, and they said, okay, this is going to take about 12 years and cost roughly $36 billion. 
So Obama said, well, that's great. We're not going to do that. But the one positive thing he did is he did open it up for competition. He said private companies can come in now and try to see what they can do. Elon Musk and, and SpaceX was able to do this not in 12 years, but in six years, and it didn't cost him $36 billion. He did it for less than one. So because of that, I think even though people people have struggled to picture or imagine you know, the free market or private companies accomplishing the things that the U.S. government do, does, they can actually do them and probably even better. And there's plenty of examples of that. So because of that, I think, yes, we can get rid of taxes. It's just trying to convince everyone to, to get on board and say, okay, well, instead, you're going to volunteer your money. But to the, to the products that you think are, you know, to the services that you depend on, the services that you think are important, like your protection or what have you. And this 3,600% markup really isn't actually that, I think that's the mass correct anyway, but that isn't that much of a stretch uh, really, because when you think about it, you know, I, I at the minute I work as a, uh, like a contractor for the government, like an agency staff member for a government department here in the UK. And it doesn't, I can clearly see, you know, how that's a that's um plausible you know because when you think of for every dollar that's spent you know by someone like tesla um the government will have hired someone to you know to do sort of evaluations and you'll have committees going on to and you know people that determine who gets what contract and people that then have to go and clean the offices that people had those meetings in and uh you know in, in my work i work in, in it but you know when i see um, the price of a keyboard, for example, is like ninety six pounds or something crazy like that. You know, that's the sort of thing that we're dealing with. Our headsets like one hundred and fifty pounds in terms of for the government to procure that headset, and you know, this um, it's it, it's not a stretch for me to imagine that at all. That that markup, that's that's probably a conservative estimate. You know, <laughs> to be honest. So all right, all right. Oh no, sorry. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. So um. Yeah, like you were saying, efficiency is just not the government's forte. But um, yeah, obviously, in terms of of taxation, you know, I I don't like the thought of it going towards this kind of bloat. And uh, you know, it's really just you're flushing it down the toilet. This inefficiency is just giving money for money's sake. And I, th I think that's the that could be the big thing that has to be addressed in terms of you know Donald Trump's tried to make it a a big part of his his uh, platform to to cut the red tape and cut down some of this bloated government. But to be honest, when you sit and reason and think it through, the government probably could be operating on a budget that's maybe, you know, a fraction of what it's, you know, a tenth, less than a tenth of what it's, probably way less than that. But even if you just cut out the, the inefficiencies and take it down to a level that it, even the current level it's operating, but operating efficiently, you could, you could quite easily, I think, cut way more than half of, of the government budget. And pretty easily. Sure, there's a lot of redundant uh, groups within the government. And I actually did a study recently to check to see how many employees actually in the U.S. work for either the state, local, or federal government. And it's and it's essentially one in five. Wow. Yeah. Does, does that did that study include um, contractors as well? Because because you know though, though though they're technically private employees, if they have a government contract, they are an extension of that department that they work for. Yeah. On, right. And actually, I don't believe it did include that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's probably the biggest. That's one of the one of the big things too. Um, one of the things that you got you got to remember too is that the government is incentivized to grow, right? Every every department in the government is incentivized to get bigger. Uh, there's no problem that they come up with that they can't theoretically solve with more people and more money, 
Whereas when you when you you know by their own you know in their own mind right, mm -hmm. but you know you look at the private just sector, set up an initiative to fix this particular yeah. problem, you know. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, and then you have this whole other department that you have, you know, this whole other thing that that, that didn't exist you know, before, or it's much bigger than it used to be because now we've created this. Bigger and, problem. and really, most of these issues that are try they're trying to resolve are really the proper place for them is in someone's you know living room that they can just sit and and, and talk you know in the backyard about yeah. how their community yeah. can be made better you know these this is what most of these yeah. committees and office even whole office blocks full of people that really it should just be people meeting in their in their backyards to talk about what they can do to fix this particular problem so there was oh i'm sorry about that so there was a uh... <laughs> oh it happens <laughs> I, yeah, I can sorry. cut this she's bit a, she, Yeah, she's a, she's a dox. She's a dachshund. And so oh, she, we she's have a, one as well. Yeah, my mom and dad have. Yeah, she's a part hound, and so she barks at everything. She's amazing. She's like my favorite child. But uh, you know, you don't do tell it. the rest that the um, yeah, no, they they know. <laughs> <laughs> but the um, yeah, no, I think there was some bit that was done uh, with uh, Dr. Milton Friedman and uh, and uh, uh, Thomas Soul was was involved in it as well. Uh, in his uh, free to choose special that he used to do on PBS way back was it the early eighties or something like that, maybe the late seventies. Um, and this was in, you know, those dollars, but, uh, it was some uh, exorbitant amount of money that was used in, in a welfare program. Um, the vet, like where the vast majority of the welfare program costs were in administering the program. So the end user, IE the welfare recipient, uh, was 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 getting was getting pennies on the dollar mm. uh, for the cost of the program, and uh, so again it goes to that whole you know not only is taxation theft and and slavery, but you're also paying uh, an, an organization that is incentivized to bloat right. But if you were to turn it over to a market, uh, we are the, the a for profit organization is incentivized to streamline. That's what we're incentivized to mm -hmm. do. Um, you don't make money by bloating unless you're in a government contract and then you make money by bloating because that's what the gov that's what the contract stipulates because and the government the are government suckers and they'll just pay whatever you ask they, them to pay and they'll just pay whatever yeah yeah but that's that's the incentive right that's when you incentivize you know follow the incentive well, you always what is the incentive and, for the government to grow what's what is this incentive i know they they can grow quite easily but what's the yeah. incentive to grow their budgets man um if you if you were to look at like when i was in the military when i was in the navy uh every september we were told because the fiscal year goes from October to the mm -hmm. end of September, right? So we were told that if we didn't use all our money, we wouldn't get any yep. more. We wouldn't get this again next Same time. Same for right? us. So, yep. so, so we would, so we we would be incentivized to find things that we need, even if we didn't need them. Right. Um, yep. Normally in our and, work, there's uh, a big overtime drive at like kind of May yeah. time to start using up all the overtime money that they've hoarded. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's just kind of, that's, that's the way it is. And at the end of the fiscal year, they try and find things to blow it on. And, and because if I can show that, you know, if I'm in this agency or this, this ship, this command, this department of whatever, um, and I can show that I have a need for more money and more employees, then I'll get a bigger budget next year. Right. And then of course that, that increases, that increase goes into pay raises and, and other things like that. So that's the incentive because of their accounting mm -hmm. practices. Um, Whereas, you know, for-profit organizations don't, 
yeah. don't run like that, or at least at least they don't unless they have a government contract. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, would you consider yeah. government contractors an extension of the government for all intents and purposes? Yeah. Yeah. Un- yeah. It, I would. I mean, maybe you know they, they they deal with private you know private things like private HR and all that other stuff. But most of these government government contracts are are de facto monopolies anyway. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the so, government almost sets I mean, up these kind of yeah, companies. They just set them up, yeah, and, they, and so I, I would, I would call it an extension. That's why I asked Kevin that question, mm. um, because that's where my mind immediately went to was, uh, you know, one in five employees in America work for the state or federal government, but I'm sure it's probably closer to two and five, two out of five if you included all the yeah. state, local, and, and federal contractors. Well, know? does does the economy? crumble temporarily if you you know whenever you think of these contractors that are working for the government and then people working directly in the in the public sector um you know how in your mind does the free market then come up with ways to get these people working and you know you think if you think of all these jobs that are just there just government jobs and government contractors um in your opinions then does will the free market come up with solutions and i'll hear both your opinions on this but um even Kevin, starting with you, then do you see then the, if these jobs disappear, where does it kind of come from? Where do these other jobs then arrive from? Right. Well, again, I hate to beat a dead horse, but we can't do things black and white overnight type of thing where you would cut all these jobs yeah. and have a huge homeless number because then all of a sudden they're going to be on welfare and they're going to expand the welfare program. We don't want to do that, obviously. So you have to find a happy medium of being able to almost amortize the transition where you start eliminating certain jobs and then providing free markets in those areas. Now, what areas would you start with? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, uh, I'm not as familiar with, with all these government contractors. I know they exist, but I, I couldn't speak to it as what areas that they actually cover in though. Yeah. Um, no, it's, I'm just, I suppose I'm not necessarily saying about if we were to cut them overnight, but, um, you know, I guess the natural question people will ask is, well, the government is keeping so many people in in uh, employment, and if you were to start cutting these jobs, and where like where where are the jobs going to come from? But maybe you have a perspective on this. But what what would then be the? Is it just the growth well, of other jobs that then start to figure out the same issues, but without government intervention? Yeah, and so I don't know what the answer is, honestly. Um, I know that there's probably it's better to do an incremental approach and go little by little and move in a direction, uh, much much like how Kevin was talking. Um, because if you do anything quickly, you rip the bandaid off. There's going to be, yeah, there's going to be some pain and suffering, right? Like, like this is you know, so so you, you get to a point where do you want to do a hard thing now or a cruel thing later? Because ultimately, we are going towards collapse. Um, the, the American economy specifically is going towards a collapse. And, and since the American economy is going towards collapse, I would say that venture, venture an extension that the global economy is going towards collapse because it's all based off of the American dollar, the petrodollar anyway, right? So um, as we're going in that direction, do you want to do a hard thing now or do we want to deal with a cruel thing later? Because ultimately they're all going to go away anyway. Government's going to fold. These jobs are going to go away. We're going to have mass inflation, mass welfare. Um, so do you, do you want to wait until we don't have a choice or do you want to try and do something about it? Uh, so that's a, that's the big question everybody needs to know or needs to answer. Unfortunately, I don't think that a lot of people um, are economically literate to understand that that's the question mm. that we're being faced with. Um, yeah. Well, so, I mean, my, you know, I'm one of these guys, rip the Band-Aid off. It's going to be a rough 10 or 15 years, but we'll figure it out. Well, it's the same with uh, the coronavirus response, you know, really. People say yeah. about... Um, 
do you keep people locked up indoors for five years or do you yeah. let them people yeah. get exposed quickly you know yeah well, and it's it's everything you know that's that and so so that's my answer is i don't know what the i don't know what i don't know what my answer is but i know that the the, the sooner the better mm. basically on that uh, very sunny note, I think it's probably a good time to <laughs> to, to finish up. <laughs> you know, everyone's going to lose their jobs, and uh, it's going to be a rough, <laughs> a rough period of time. <laughs> the next decade is just going to be hard. But after that, it'll be great. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, bro. I didn't mean to do that. No. Uh, yeah, and taxation theft—that's another takeaway. So, we, well, both of you agreed on that, which is great. So, um, there you go. But um, just to finish off, then. Um, do you guys want to let everyone know that's listening where they can find your podcasts and your Twitter pages and all that stuff? We'll start with you, Kevin. Oh, sure. Uh, you can actually have a website. You can head over to uh, the Kevin Lee show.com. That's the Kevin Lee show.com. And uh, on there, we I do actually do multiple podcasts. I do the Libertarian Hour. I do the Daily Dirty 30 as well as whatever with Kevin. Awesome. And on Twitter, you are? Oh, uh, Kevin Lee Show. Awesome. Or at Kevin Lee Show. Q then, do you want to go ahead with yours? Nope. Check it, yeah. There we go. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Um, I am Q. I am at Q underscore abolitionist on uh, on Twitter. And uh, I have a show a show account also. It's uh, at unshackled underscore L. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a podcast called Unshackled Liberty. And my co-host is Crypto Gumbo. If you wanted to follow him, he's at Crypto Gumbo. And uh, we, it's just a libertarian variety show. We spend a lot of our time on Twitter, mostly, uh, just kind of playing around with the other, with the other uh, uh, libertarian types over there, and you know the anarcho types, and um, mm-hmm. it's a good time. So uh, we, I, we love the interaction, um, and uh, you know I, I, I appreciate the opportunity mm-hmm. to be on your show no, to talk I, about uh, some of this stuff. So thank you very much. It's great to have you both. And uh, just to satisfy the NSA who may be watching this, are you affiliated with the Q regime? <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, no, I'm not, man. Uh, I, so yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So that Q Q uh, is an interesting. I don't know if we, we talked a little bit about that earlier. I don't know if you caught it on the recording, but um, Q's an initial, man. You know, yep. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think about the impact of the Q anon thing, yeah. and I, that's I have no affiliation with that whatsoever. That guy's a fed, anyway. <laughs> well, I wanted to give give people a, a chance to hear it from the horse's mouth before they see you dragged away in handcuffs for being an instigator or something. But uh, anyway, so yes, and I'm uh, at Josh underscore TTT for the two things. Um, two things you shouldn't talk about podcast. And then I think our um, the page for that show is at the two things pod, I believe. You can double check the link will be in the bio and I'll link these two guys as well for anyone who's listening. But um, guys, it's been great to, to have you on. It'd be cool to do it again sometime. And I'm sure that we barely even scratched the surface of a lot of topics and we can go in a lot of different directions. But uh, maybe someday, you know, we can we can do another one and uh, it'd be great to, to chat to you again. But thanks so much for for coming on the show. And it's it's been it's been a fun time. My great. pleasure. Thanks, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Yeah, had a great time. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh yeah, until next week, um, join us again on the, the two things you shouldn't talk about podcast. But um, thanks so much for listening. Make sure uh, you subscribe and give us all a follow and uh, check out all these other wonderful podcasts. But uh, thanks again, and we'll see you next time.